In this discussion, we will explore uh, proven strategies to attract and retain great teachers. Um, we'll also explore what a school can do to continue to develop teachers and staff to ensure personal and professional development opportunities are being maximized. Um, and we'll also look at regional challenges that schools are currently facing uh, when attracting high caliber candidates. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by our guest today. Um, if we could do maybe a quick round of introductions, that would be fantastic. Um, Wayne, you're at the top of my screen there. Do you want to, do you want to kick off? Okay, happy to kick off there. So hi, everyone. Um, I'm Wayne Johnson. I'm head of school at the International School of Belgium, just outside of Antwerp. I've been in international education for 20 years now, and I've worked in schools in Asia, Africa, and now back in Europe. Excellent. Thanks, Wayne. Giles, you want to go next? Uh, hi, everybody. Um, I'm Giles Mongari. Um, I'm head of an international school in Bangkok, Thailand, um, and I've worked in Asia now for a number of years, as well as uh, leading schools in um, Europe as well. Excellent. Thanks, Charles. Uh, Karen, do you want to go next? Hello, I'm Karen. I'm currently principal at the British International School of Tunis, North Africa. Um, like Wayne, international for more than 20 years as well, leadership for more than 10, and previously worked in America, Thailand and China before coming here. Fantastic. And last but not least, uh, Laura. Okay. Hello, I'm Laura Avagori, and I'm a founding member of the International Schools Network. I'm also an educator of 20 years, primarily in the International Schools Network. Um, but I've also been in uh, senior leadership in school in London, and I've also worked in the maintained sector. Brilliant. Great to have everyone on the call. Um, and just to, just to let everyone know, so the structure of the, of the conversation, I'll be asking the first question, um, then I'll hand over to, to Laura, who's also guest hosting um, this discussion as well, to ask um, questions two, three, four, and five, um, and then I'll uh, come back and, 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 um, and round it up with the, with the last question. Um, so my first question uh, to kick off the conversation, um, what recent issues have you all encountered when trying to attract great teachers? Um, and maybe what strategies have you um, used or do you use to ensure you're attracting the best quality teachers in the different international um, contexts you are currently and previously have worked in? Who'd like to kick that question off? Uh, well, I'll, I'll start if that's okay. Just I think by saying that I've noticed that I think staff have just become a lot more savvy. Um, certainly at interview, um, I think teachers ask a lot more questions um, now than they used to. It used to be advertise a job and then interview. Um, and now I think interviews are becoming much more demanding. Um, teachers have high expectations of the organisation that they're going to join. Um, and they ask some. They ask some pretty good questions. They want to know um, how they're going to be looked after. What's the onboarding process like? Um, what will they get at the end of a contract? Um, how will they be supported professionally, personally, and of course, well-being is a an omnipresent factor in all of this as well. So I think that would be how I would open this up. Just that the landscape's changed. I would agree with that, Giles, and I think the question point is really good. Just this week, a young colleague in the UK currently asked me, what's your five-year plan for the school? Which is a great question, you know, if you're looking for a longer-term commitment. But that's something that we would have previously expected from perhaps a leader, someone in middle leadership, rather than an ECT. 
So it, the interview process has definitely become much more two-way rather than more Q&A. It's much more discussion-based now, I feel. I'd agree with that, Giles. I think um, just to add to that, I'm not really going to contradict what, um, what's already been said in terms of, I think, interview process a bit different, but I'm going to probably answer the second part of that question and strategies. I feel like as an employer now, I have to be a bit more, look at different avenues. I mean, in the past, I would always advertise on tests for teaching positions or then look locally, where now I've really started to play around a lot with LinkedIn and how that's used to attract teaching. I found it pretty effective. Um, so, and then using my own network through LinkedIn to actually post vacancies in the school and ask people to spread it around. So in a way, using a bit of social media when I've got vacancies and I've found it actually, I've been getting better quality candidates through that avenue or more relevant for the skills. And when I've advertised mm -hmm. on tests where maybe half of them are not relevant to the position I advertise for. So I think that's been a big difference that I've started to do in the last year or two years that I wouldn't have even thought about before. So I think in terms of looking wider for the pool, looking at different strategies for recruitment has been effective for me. There's a, there's a think, growing body. Oh, sorry. There, there was an echo. Um, a growing body of research out there as well that for teachers, them being the buyers, it's quite the buyer's market at the moment. You know, with the teacher shortage and a lot of schools finding it challenging to get exactly the profile of candidate that they that they want. I know the uh, ISC research has just concluded uh, a study that, you know, that that is a great challenge for the schools in finding profile that they want, but that teachers are being considerably more savvy in their questioning, um, looking at the stability of the school, the benefits package, the salaries and career progression. So also looking um, more at what is the longer term strategy for schools? I mean, what are their priorities in the next year or two and seeing how that fits with their own career goals? So the world is sort of the oyster um, in the last recruiting season and potentially going forward for, for teachers. So they start to ask those questions, more challenging questions for schools. Again, I couldn't agree more, Laura, and I think that's why it's really important to be extremely open and transparent with mm -hmm. candidates, because obviously you want the retention factor as well. So I feel during the interview stage, if we can be extremely open, who we are, where we are, you know, some of the issues, uh, Tunisia, one of those would be a closed economy, which is very difficult. And staff need to wait three months before they have all the paperwork they require to move money out the country. But actually, I find being very open about that first interview level really helps. And I've also found um, I always talk about professional development opportunities for staff coming particularly those leaving the UK for the first time, where the professional development is much more to hand and easier to do than it is for any international school. So trying to find out more about their professional needs, but their personal professional needs, and if we can support them and make very clear, alongside wellbeing. I think that pastoral care of staff is more important now than it ever has been. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think just to add to that, the, the 
the culture of a school, I think, in an interview process has to be made very, very clear. Um, I've got um, colleagues who, you know, have joined schools recently and said, if only I had known that the workload was going to be the same as, if not worse, than the UK, I wouldn't have made that move. They felt that there wasn't enough transparency in the process of, of the interviews and that there weren't those opportunities to ask those questions um, in some cases. So I think transparency is absolutely essential because the school and, and the teacher are looking for a good fit. And, and if the mindset is not there on the same page, um, ultimately people are going to leave and potentially leave before their contracts are finished. I think that's uh, everyone's touched on that. It's a very important part because, especially on very upfront interviews, that look in international school, I expect teachers to get involved in different areas and want to be involved in different areas. It's not just coming to teach your students. We have events, activities, as annual shows, as sports days, houses, and committees, and things like that. And I actually want teachers who enjoy that aspect of being in a school environment because sometimes you get people from a very different environment. If you haven't been upfront at the beginning then they're quite surprised they ask to do those things or they don't or they do it reluctantly and that's not the environment we want. So yeah, I think I'm just mm -hmm. echoing what everyone else has said there, the transparency, because then there's no surprises for both sides if mm -hmm. people come on board. Exactly. Excellent. Um Laura, I'll hand over to you to answer ask the next okay. uh, question. Next question. Okay. How have you found any regional differences when hiring and retaining new teachers and staff? Um, I'll kick off on this one then, if that's okay, just because until 2019, I was working in Asia, another place, and then in Europe. And of course, we've had this, uh, the the C word that we can say, COVID, has uh, happened in the last few years. And, uh, and it's really changed, I think, from being a European school. And obviously, I mean, still can't, but definitely couldn't in the past compete with packages on offer in Asia and the Middle East, etc. Where after COVID and the restrictions and movement and everything, I've tended to find pre and post COVID, it's much easier to recruit in Europe, even though there's still the financial constraints where housing is not genuinely offered for teachers and the taxes and everything like that one. But in terms of whenever I've got a vacancy, I, I get more than enough candidate supply. And that wouldn't have been the case before, where there's markets like China was a, what, a very lucrative one, the Middle East. It's getting back there because, of particularly, a lot of the UK independent school franchises are starting to open up everywhere again, Vietnam, India, etc. So I do think it will start taking off again on the international circuit. But Europe's become more attractive than it was. So I'm not finding an issue of finding it. Retaining people because the financial, if they're very good teachers and, they, and they're international educationists rather than somebody wants to dip the toes in for a few years overseas and then go back to the home country. If they're genuine international educators, then of course... At some point, there's a much more financial lucrative places out there. But initially, post-COVID, Europe's become much easier to recruit for than it was before. I think I think the other the other the, the other unmentionable is of course the B word. I think Brexit. Um, I was in Europe until until last year, um, and although I'm I'm confident things are improving in terms of recruiting, um, particularly UK nationals. Um, that was certainly a barrier last last year. Um, I'm a, I understand it's better now and it's becoming easier. 
But I think now I'm back in Asia. Um, I certainly find recruiting um, is on the easier side because obviously you've got, you know, you're able to, the salaries go further, the cost of living is lower and, and packages are generally better. But I am finding then at the same time that it's more attractive to a particular demographic. So younger teachers are easier to recruit here than perhaps um, older older um, older teachers or couples or married. So, and, and obviously we need to be really mindful of that balance of staff. Um, here it's easier to, to pick up um, families with children because you can offer multiple school places and, and, and things like this. So it's easier to attract, I think. Um, and then of course the retention issue is a separate issue, but um, I, feel, I feel more confident back in Asia to recruit um, than I did this time, you know, a couple of years ago in, in Europe. It's really funny listening to you, Giles, because I have the exact opposite issue. I've got my majority of candidates who come forward are much more experienced than in my age group. And I think just Tunisia is not as world-class a destination as Thailand, Singapore, you know, the draw of the Middle East for finances for the younger colleagues that might be interested. So this isn't like a destination that's really thought about. A lot of the interviews I do, people are, oh, I didn't really think about Tunisia until I saw your advert and I visited your website and we explored that further. And I think jumping on something else you said, Giles, about the package, I feel that quite often we need to educate candidates about the package a little bit further because they might see in an interview, oh, well, I've been offered more in Dubai or China where the cost of living is very different. So it's the educating candidates to understand what the package means in the local or national context, you know. Um, I think a few people are quite sure. We have a good package for our, the country that we live in, but people are put off by the numbers rather than delving a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. And obviously in China, the main struggle I had, I was in China during and throughout the pandemic and the few years following, it was getting, we couldn't get people in the country. We had to look at other ways of um, utilising, we could not get international teachers unless they were moving school. And then the Chinese market went into direct competition on just upping numbers financially. So post-COVID in China was a more difficult than when the pandemic first hit. So I'm still learning. I, I'm in relatively a new part of the world for me with my first round of interviews. Um, but I think the package is a big, big one for me and the destination that people mm -hmm. don't know well. I think if we took a look at countries who've had, um, you know, recent and not so recent political instability like Egypt, for example, when I was in Cairo for five years and you know, tended to get the younger teachers that didn't have children because there was the concern about being trapped in the country. I mean, I myself was was trapped in the country a few times um, and my daughter was quite young, but you have to have steely nerves to sort of endure that. And it's understandable why people would get nervous about it. So some of the strategies the school had to use was upping the package. I mean, despite a very low cost of living, but then of course, one of the challenges they're facing now in attracting teachers to Europe is the Egyptian pound has been devalued significantly. And then there's the challenge about 
you know, um, the economic restrictions as well. So, that, you know, if you're earning in, in Egyptian pounds, your real earnings in the real world are not going to be very good. And then the banking restrictions and all those sorts of um, closed economies coupled with political turmoil. And so there are, I mean, in Egypt, um, there's, there's a growth in the international school market. Now, I think they may possibly have as many as 90-odd schools and big groups in investing like King's College and GEMS, um, and so those big brand names in countries like that are probably going to be able to afford to pay the bigger packages where you may have school that's been there for several years and saying, hang on, we can't compete with this. So they'll have to start upping that as well. So there's all these different factors that can make it when it's not a world class destination, say, Thailand or you know Europe. Um, schools are having to make some pretty tough choices and some big decisions to, to keep running as as highly professional international schools very high standards yeah just, yeah and I, I i was just thinking there while i was listening the other the other i think the, the other side and this is probably the same for wherever we are in the globe is that when we're hiring um a te teacher x and they have a they have a wife or or a husband um you know it's really sometimes difficult in terms of of how how that host country uh, deals with things like dependencies and can they work and uh, because families have such a difficult decision to make and maybe one of them needs to stop working um, some parts of the world you know you have to be married so you can only hire married people or your schools have to have separate contracts and that affects the benefits I just think it's become it's become a lot more um, a lot more tricky to navigate um, you know because there are so many moving parts to that recruitment process now it used to be much more straightforward um and and it is it, it is more you know becoming more and more tricky to navigate as the political um agenda changes and rules change on on, on migration and immigration and who and who, who can't work and things so it's not um it's not straightforward i think that's one of the really big differences in social recruitment and other right for recruiting our home countries where these kind of questions you ask because for example here if people are coming as a couple and only, I'm only hiring one and the other person hasn't found work in the country, I know genuinely they will really struggle to survive on one salary in Belgium and if they've got children as well. And I will be upfront and that those kind of questions you ask, what's your situation? Do you have a partner? Are you married, single? Do you have children? Where normally, and I'm always upfront about it, I will be saying, look, I'm going to ask you some personal questions and, you, and there's a reason I'm asking these because I want to make sure it fits. And it's perfect for you, so there's no surprise, and I'll be very upfront. But for some people, that seems it can be a very intrusive question like that. What's it to do with you if I've got children or a partner? But it's important because when people are moving from the home country and coming in, we don't want them after a few weeks to turn around and say, oh, by the way, this is not for me, or I can't survive here. I wish I'd have known before. And especially when, in all our contexts, we've gone through a lot of paperwork, work permits is quite an expense on the school to get the right people in. So that's something that I feel like probably not apparent to people not recruiting in this sector about those kind of personal questions we have to ask. I agree. It's so important, Wayne, because if they're not happy at home, they won't be happy in school. It's not going to work out. And as you say, the amount of um, time resources and financial resources that go into one application, we all know that's intense. So... I, I think you do have to be more pro-bank, um, in a sensitive way, of course, but the more information 
we have on both sides of the interview, the more an informed decision, the more likely people are going to say yes and stay. Uh, it's all that back to transparency again, isn't it? Laura, do you want to ask the next question? Sure, let's move on. Um, okay, so can you tell us about some of the practical strategies and initiatives you've implemented in your own school context to ensure you're retaining the best teachers? I'll go first on this one. Everyone else is a little bit quiet. I think one of the things is investing it in our national team just as much as the international team. So going back to an earlier point where we're talking about professional development, actually investing in our local team to do PGCE, paid for by the school. And of course, the contract then is extended, commensurate to the, number, the amount of money we put in, the expectation, because that's where you're going to retain more teachers. So alongside training our local team, to have the UK PGCE, having an in-house mentor. It's also educating the parents about the quality of teachers, regardless of nationality, background, culture. If they have fluent English and they have the right qualification, they have just as much right to the position as anyone else. So investing in local staff and training and supporting them I found useful in both China and here. China by necessity. So I borrowed that model and brought it with me. Yeah, just think, to add think, on that as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Giles. No, I was just going to think, I think that's that's one of the themes, isn't it, that's, that, that's going to run through, I think, this whole thing is that opportunity and the transparency. I think, um, you know, there is no, there is no silver bullet um, to any, mm -hmm. any of these, any of these issues. Um, but I think that I think the success really of 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 keeping and then retaining is about that transparency right from the start. So, you know, where I can sell my school and I can sell the vision for the school and the and its values and look for that person to buy into what we're selling, coupled with career opportunity. And that, you know, that might be to grow them as a leader or a middle leader. And I think we work hard to to make sure that there's opportunity. You know, if you can if you can find it and if you can identify it. I can support you in making it happen, whether it's leading on an initiative, whether it's, you know, maybe offering, um, uh, creating a, a kind of a job title so that someone feels that that can go onto their CV and, and, and they can grow professionally that way as well. These things don't need to cost the world, but they, but they mean an awful lot to, to these individuals. And I think, you know, if, if people feel that they're growing and they're still growing, they won't leave. Um, they will get to a point where they have outgrown their position or the role that they're in or what you hired them for. But if they are looking and there's opportunity and you can provide that, um, I think I think that 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 for me is the key to kind of you know an initiative, if you like. Although it's not really, it's more about a culture um, and, and and an expectation of staff to to seek opportunity, to identify opportunity, and then to kind of grow into that role professionally so that, that that's something i found that works regardless of where we are it's not a huge financial investment but an investment of people i've been having conversations um, Sorry. recently so, uh, i've been having conversations recently with heads of schools in in south asia africa uh, and southern europe and they have been talking about having talented 
um, local local staff, but also teachers they brought in who might have a PGCE but not QTS or have a bachelor's degree, but many, many years experience. So what um, they've been starting to explore is making part of their CPD program, either partially funding or supporting if they want to do a PGCE and they're the international PGCEs, but of course that doesn't lead to QTS or looking at partially funding an offer that they can get QTS through an assessment only route. And um, they're sort of really seriously considering that to, to retain foreign teachers they've got there, who they may have brought in a while ago, who are just feeling a bit, they need to go to the next level to develop professionally, as Giles was saying, or looking at very, very talented um, local teachers who have solid, um, say, a Bachelor of Education in their own countries, and then having gone through, say, a QTS process would then be known to meet the standards that DFE would um, require. Now, this is a fairly new concept to schools. Um, I've been doing a little bit of independent work with a company called Educators Abroad, which is why I've been sort of studying the market on their behalf. They offer the assessment only route to QTS. And some schools are really warming up to the idea, particularly the schools who don't either have their own training set, you know, centers or are having huge difficulties attracting the right profile that they want to their school. So I guess you could say that kind of moved on to a strategy that some schools are using, but that's very much something that people are starting, heads of schools, senior leaders are starting to talk about and to consider quite seriously. So potentially something to consider. I'm going to uh, follow up what Giles, because Giles, you said exactly what I was going to say, actually, kind of, so uh, I'll kind of paraphrase about offering opportunities for different areas, particularly if people show initiative, because that can be a way that, okay, loosely they start off with it and then they run with it and then it can be formalised. So, so for example, we've had a lot of interns approaching us directly and we've, and we've also got an arrangement with a local university for teachers to come in and do internships. But as it started to grow, we got more and more. I want it to kind of be a bit more formalised. So it's not random anymore. And and I have a teacher who's Spanish teacher I have in my early years, and they've they helped me when I was linking with a university in Spain who wanted to look for opportunities for teacher training and to come to our school. So she was very passionate in that. So I said, okay, why don't you run with this program? And I won't make it a formal position. And you can say no, but you're very good at it. And if you start taking care of that program, then I will formalize that and I'll actually give that as a title to you in another year. And that's something that you can then actually be recognized for it and get a stipend um, to it. So that kind of thing, rather than just creating um, creating titles for the sake of it, there's actually things that will help the school grow and help the person. And then it can lead to an actual formal formal role moving forward. And, and the other thing about retaining the best teachers, work-life balance is very important. Again, I expect uh, hard work in the school. It's a very busy school, lots going on. But I'm also very conscious people have a home life and they can go home. I mean, the work hours, people 4.30 very rarely are staying after 4.30. They're out at home and I can be flexible about what they need to do. And if they need to go drop their kids off or pick them up, then okay, great. You're just going to let me know. And then I think that's important for building trust of people feeling that they want to stay somewhere as well. Because again, we can't always compete financially, so we have to look at the environment and what we offer in terms of trust and flexibility for staff as well. I think that's my other T, Wayne, it's trust, transparency, you put the nail on the head, because if you have that culture of trust within your staff community, magic happens, because you're, you're building that trust within all the different departments, groups, 
all the stakeholders, and that really helps with retention. I'd also like to touch on, sorry, so touch on something just for that panel here, because we're talking about retention, but I mean, realistically, there's also an element where after being in places where it's contract-based, you might have two years, two years, Europe's different, two years, it's permanent, automatic after two years. But I'm also of the opinion that if some people work for you for two years or four years, then they go with a blessing, really. Sometimes it's okay to not look at retaining everyone as long as they're actually really doing a good job when they're here, because some flow of staff is also a good thing, as long as it's actually not too big a turnover and you haven't got the turnover because people are unhappy with the conditions. If it's a natural turnover in terms of people want to try something new, move to a different country, but they've done a really good job for you, I think that's also helps freshen things up. I think sometimes when you're in a school and nobody moves and they've all been there 10, 15 years, it's not always ideal either. So as much as we want to retain good people, there's also it's important to know when to let good people go as well mm -hmm. and, and look at how they train somebody coming in. I suppose that would do, that would fit with you know um, the strategy or the, the the school development planning. If it's the curriculum is being further developed, you may need an, a different type of skill set coming in to mix in to to balance to drive that forward. That would have the school development plan, particularly if you want to embed technology, for example, and you're finding that a lot of the stuff you've had there already or some percentage don't really have those skills. It would be able to have some people who are highly skilled in that area to help drive forward those plans to embed the technology across the curriculum. So I think it comes down to what's your overall school development plan in the next, say, three to five years, for example, um, to, to have a little look at the skill set you're going to need in to support schooling in getting there. Just a quick question there, so I'll just jumping in. Um... Uh, how how might you approach those sort of slightly sensitive, difficult conversations mm -hmm. potentially um, with with staff that you know might have to have that conversation around you know you know you've been here for maybe ten years and and maybe you're thinking uh, as a as a leader that you might need some fresh blood or something like you know how how might you approach that way and just out of interest? I think it's aligns. Oh, sorry, Lee. No, no, fly, fly in. I think if it um, aligns to your school development plan, so at the moment, let me give a real-life example which might help. We're completely redesigning the primary curriculum, complete redesign, trying to really think ahead, be forward-thinking, future-ready, incorporating all the things we hope children will need in the future. We're all on best guess at the moment. And I'm finding those conversations happen naturally. Because as you're going through a period of change management in a school, the staff who've been there longest are quite often the ones that just want to come in and they're comfortable in their working environment. They're doing the same um, and they're a little bit afraid of new development. Not all, some of them. Some of my team have really, you know, got this by the reins and they're running with it. They've been here for years and they're doing a great job. But I think that that really happens naturally, Max, where as a school and a teacher begin to grow apart in their pedagogy, their way of thinking, a change management process that's happening, those staff naturally leave. And if not, if they need a little nudge along the way, a really good high quality performance management discussion will help enable that. So I think if you've got your performance ma management strategies 
licked really cleanly, cyclical, it builds on year on year for those returning SAG members, there's no shocks and surprises. And again, it comes back to trust and transparency, that you can have those open conversations. And always from the perspective of, I want what's best for you. You know, I, I, I'm here, not just as a colleague, not as your principal, but as a friend, let's talk through this. And as you said, Wayne, for some staff, it's time to move on and you let them go with good grace. I think all talks, it, it's CPD, it's performance management, it's trust, open relationships where you can talk easily. Um, and then the tricky conversation isn't as tricky as it could be. I, think I totally so, yeah. agree. I think whenever you, whenever you um, want to implement fairly significant change, that turnover that you might want will happen naturally because the, the, the teacher's been there a while to say, well, I just don't feel comfortable with this. This is not the school I came here for to begin with. I don't like the way things are going. And you will get that natural attrition. And probably, to sound unkind, but luckily, people that you probably thought they wouldn't be able to go with in the direction, they just naturally take that decision themselves most of the time. And I and I think you know it, it, there are there are fewer of those more challenging conversations to be had. I mean, every school is different, but in schools I've been with, we found we knew that there were a handful when implementing major change in the school were just not going to go along. So we supported them through the process as much as we could, but gave them time to reflect: if is this really what you want to do or not? And quite often it was like, actually, no. Now, I've been here four or five years. This is not the way I want to go. So an amicable parting of the ways. Yeah, just on that, Max. I mean, obviously, conversations can be quite different here in, in Europe to other parts of the world because if people have been here a long time anyway, they're very protected by the state, so you can't move people on if they're against the will and there's, there's no, like, giving a notice period or anything like that one. But on the other hand, I think it, it's why I, I came back in terms of, like, a natural, when it's no transpute, I'm thinking more about people like two to four years are really on the international circuit. I'm I'm quite happy if I get four years out of somebody who works really well for me, then they really go with a blessing because I also like some natural turnover as long as it's not everyone's here for a year or two and all gone. It's not there's no stability. But I also our student body comes and goes all the time in international school. I mean, we get a really high turnover on contracts and things. So it's also quite good for parents to learn that the staff are not static. Trust me to do the good hiring, but if someone's worked here for two years and they've done a really good job, then they go in a really fond way and I will bring somebody else in who might stay for two years or four years, but they will be equally as good as the person who's gone. And then coming back to the point about when you do change them, I usually feel it's just, a, of course, you have the conversations, you say people want on board, but it's usually a way like it's going to happen with or without you, whether you like it or not. I want you to like it because this is going to be good for the school based on what's worked previously. I'm not going to make changes for changes sake. There are actually changes need to be made. But if you drag your feet and go against it, it's not going to stop me doing it. So you're going to so it's better you get on board with it because you're going to end up being in a minority as well. And I found that's the way that enough people get on board and get enthusiastic. The ones who want to drag the feet, they've got no real nowhere to go so they get they get on board with it or they do decide it's not for them and if they do decide it's not for them it's no big drama it's all okay but you'd rather they get on board with it i mean like i say it sounds quite simplistic when you say that we all know it's not as simple as that but i think overall if you treat it that way then it tends to be okay 
and we have good or bad days, probably bang our heads against the wall some days over that. But all right. So we may I think we've touched on this a bit, but if there's something more we want to add, what incentives have you found that great teachers are looking for when moving to a new school and incentives for retaining them? So maybe first with the angle of you know, you're recruiting, what what have you found that teachers are really looking for? Um expecting you to provide for them to come to your schools? I think it's all about package. When you get to the Q&A, um, the first thing that I'm generally asked is what is the package? What is the financial incentive? And I think I mentioned earlier opportunities for professional development. So when I'm interviewing, I, of course, you know, You've got to give people the information they need. You don't know people's personal financial circumstances and how much they need per month to live on. Um, but I think aligning that also with where the school is, the type of school we are, the values, why they would be a good fit. And it's not selling ice test mills, but it is, this is who we are. This is our vision. Our pedagogies match, I think, would be a good fit. And then if discussion on package needs to happen, you can have those discussions within reason. I think, obviously, the package becomes, when it gets down to it, becomes number one. Also, they might ask for school placing, but I suppose that's package. I also get lots of, I get a lot of younger teachers because I know, John and Karen, you touched on about the demographic. I don't tend to get many people who are in the middle, in 30s, 40s. 50s. I don't get many of those applying because, again, it might not be financially incentivised for them to come to Europe. So it tends to be younger teachers or older teachers, not much in the middle. Um, and younger teachers, I often get asked a lot, OK, what's, what's the city like? What's Antwerp like as a place to live? What's your staff like? Are people socialise? Are they friendly? Is they, they, they're, they're nervous about the social aspect, that they will be lonely when they move over and everything. So that's one of the things that I will tend to get asked in an interview where you're never going to get asked that question in your home country or where they're applying. So... That's the thing that I try to build on. Again, it's not like police. You don't force that thing, but you make sure there are enough um, activities that staff are doing socially so somebody who joins can find a work colleagues who will look after them socially at the beginning so they find their own way or stay with them. It's very interesting because the whole well-being movement, I was having a chat recently with a couple of former colleagues who've gone to big brand name schools with very, very good packages, uh, primarily in Asia, and they were saying that the stress levels and the workload has been unlike anything they've experienced and has a huge impact on their mental health, their physical health and their families. And so they've said they'd rather go to a school that has more of a focus on the well-being, not the bottom line of the organization and accept a lesser package to get more fulfillment you know, uh, in their profession. Um, I don't know if anybody, I mean, I'm just talking primarily to, 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 you know, educators who've got several years experience who have known for quite some time. Um, have you found that when talking in the recruiting process, talking to teachers who've asked you about the work-life balance, um, did you ever get a sense yeah. that maybe you know, for them all the money in the world, but at the end of the day, that, that wouldn't be for them? It's interesting, Laura, because I think, you know, Having having worked in some you know bigger schools and some smaller schools, and it's really the you know, the point that Karen and Wayne have made about you know there there is the, I think there is a sense that package is all. I'm not I'm not convinced, 
Um, I think I think a lot of it, you know, I mean, it goes back to I think the point that we were talking about earlier about our role almost as sales salespeople. You know, we, if we sell our school, and I think if we're honest and transparent, we don't need to compete. You know, I know that I can't compete with the flagship schools here in Bangkok, so I don't try to. You know, so when I'm when I'm writing my ads for my school, I'm I'm really careful that I'm selling what we actually are, so that when we get down to the you know three four five people I'm going to talk to I'm 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 talking with the people that want to come to my school because they they buy into the vision the culture they like the extracurricular stuff they like the the, the fact that we focus on working with our community and giving back and that doesn't cost us anything but it it, it does separate us I think from some of the bigger schools and I think some of the some of the brands aren't able to offer that flexibility even on interview. I can say to somebody, like I can, I can almost guarantee you limitless opportunity within my school if you come in and you're open-minded and you're hardworking and you identify opportunity to, to, to start an initiative or to take on a piece of work. Or I can support that and you will grow. And as Wayne said, you can leave in two, three years' time and you'll be better. And that's all I want. Everybody leaves. As long as they leave better than when they came to me, then, then I've done my job. But I think I think with the bigger schools that I've I've been involved with, I've found it harder to even have that conversation to interview because it is about this is the pay scale, this is your your point, and I can't promise you anything because I'm interviewing you for an English role, and that's all I can talk about. So I can't even talk about opportunity down the road because it's not there yet. Whereas in my current role, I can talk about opportunity because I want people to come in and take opportunity. So I think it's you know, it's apples and oranges, really. And I think, you know, having that, having a good understanding of your organization and being really clear at interview, this is what, what I can and what I can't do. So it's, the, it's there again, that transparency word. And I think that's why I get the top end of the demographic that aren't as package focused, Giles. You know, those people that are, as you said, Laura, they're looking much more for the right school, the family feel that we offer, the service learning we provide. And one of the things like you, Giles, you know, where staff can trial things, they can have initiatives and they can grow. And I'm basing that on at the moment with our curriculum development, complete restructuring of a traditional primary staffing, where we're looking much more at staff strengths and expertise. So during interview at the moment, people have become quite passionate in the interview. It's ended up in great pedagogical discussion because I'm saying, so what else can you offer? Think outside the box. You're not just a year three classroom teacher. What are you passionate about that you would like to lead on within a curriculum that inspires our young learners? Because if you're doing something you're passionate about, you have a strength in it really does motivate our children. So we're moving much more away from traditional learning, which is, you're quite right, Giles, if I was in a more corporate establishment, I wouldn't have the ability to do that. But being part of a smaller group, I have the backing to do this. I've had to give the reasoning, of course, but I have the backing to do it, and then I can impart that to the staff. So looking at, Okay, for 50% of the lessons, we're going to do cross-year group learning. Some of that you will be choosing either PBL, outdoor learning, performing arts, United Nations sustainable goals to try and prepare our future children. And it's the 
staff of my age, and I'm so glad when you said that middle age is still in the 50s, I, two thumbs up from me, I like that one. Um, but it's my age group that are becoming impassioned about that. Is it, we're on it, we're on this journey with you, believe in that, never mind the package, you're doing what I want to do. For the younger ones are less inclined, maybe they're a little bit nervous that there's not so much of a script to follow, that there's not so much of a backbone to rely on. Um, as much as an older member of staff who's like, at long last, let me do what I believe in, you know? Um, and I'll just preface this a little bit. It's about maintaining teaching and learning standards in a school. Um, there's another body of research where teachers who may wish to return to the UK, and there's growing evidence that many do at some point after being abroad, that schools in the UK have some concern that they may not be teaching to the standards that would be suitable um, to teaching within the UK. And so um, this is something that's on teachers' minds. Will they become, will they de-skill by going to an international school? I, I actually think it's the opposite. I think they gain a lot, but there are teachers who've never been out of the UK and worry about that because of the perceptions when they come back. So the question is, what strategies have or do you use to ensure you're continuing to develop teachers in maintaining their high standards? Oh, well, I think there's two. There's internal and external process on this one. So I think the internal one is I'm in a very good appraisal system. That's very much two-way, so genuine two-way appraisal and where teachers can identify their own professional development needs for personal ones and put a request in so they can constantly develop themselves in areas that are of interest to them. And I think the other one, well, it's external and internal, is um, accreditation for the school that we're going through NIASC accreditation at the moment. And of course, then you have to be a certain standard on what you're doing in the classroom. And it's a very transparent process, 360 degree, looking at every single thing we do as a learning community. So it's actually upskilling our staff because everybody's involved in that accreditation process in terms of committees, areas of interest, and we ensure everybody is really involved in it as well. So I find that's in terms of that upskilling people, the, the external accreditation body is really helping us do that as well. And just to touch on your point about the UK as well, I think they're actually, I think that's more of an issue with the hiring practices for UK heads and stuff where they're really, I do genuinely think they're missing out. It's, I think it's ridiculous to see that People have worked internationally are suddenly going to, and then they go back to cover teachers or they're doing supply work when they've been like teaching 15 years overseas. It's it's crazy. And the government, there's a teacher shortage, yet they're actually not looking at this fast pool. Well, there you go. That's not for yeah. me to decide, but I do find it a shame. Well, there I is think, a big I think organized, there. Yeah. Ahead, Jill, I think, sorry. I think, I'm just going to say, Laura, I, I, you know, there are, I think, you know, some of the bigger organizations, um, they are really a, I think very aware or becoming more and more aware of this and 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 it is a massive issue i mean you know staff do think this this might be it you know if, if i go overseas um i can't get back in and you know and i've i've heard it and i've read about it and i've seen it that that, that you know that it is it is true and i think you know organizations like fabicia are working very hard with with the uk government to to try and create or to make sure that if if they've got you know, international qualifications, if they've been achieved overseas, that they can get national recognition back home so that teachers can come safely, gain two, three, four, five years experience and then go go home. 
but it does it does feel like that that return home isn't going to be easy and and I think it is something we need to be mindful of um I mean I agree with Wayne that accreditation is a real strength because whether it's you know CIS or EDT or whichever brand it is internationally recognized and if it's got the UK stamp that does I think provide some assurances because teachers who are going to return home can talk to I worked in a CIS school I worked in a Fabicia school I worked for Nord Anglia whoever it is it is recognized but I do, I do wonder what, you know, unless the government are going to make some kind of statement and say, you know, it's okay or say if you go within five years or until they are kind of bold enough to give us something to work with, um, teachers are always going to be a little bit, I think, concerned, which is maybe why, you know, we are finding that we're, older teachers are coming to us a bit more easily because maybe they don't want to go back or they think I've done it. And perhaps younger teachers are just dipping their toe and thinking, well, I'll do a year or two and then go home. So maybe, Wayne, that's where your middle, your middle core of people is. Maybe they're, they're still back in the UK because they're thinking, well, if I leave, you know, I've still got my mortgage to pay for, so I can't afford the international and my mortgage and, and, and it might not be safe to return. So I think there's work there to be done. But I'm, I'm hopeful that organisations like, like Fabicia and, and, and like CIS are going to continue to work with um, home nations. I think just touching that as well, Giles, I think that's another question I would ask, actually. Are you, do you see yourself as an international educator or are you somebody who wants to just go work overseas for a couple of years and go back? Because I do think there's quite a difference. People who actually commit to international education will see themselves as a X amount of years career working overseas and don't necessarily think they're going to go back to a school in their home country. It's more like I'm an international teacher. And that's it's quite a difference, and I, I'm really quite upfront and ask people that one as well because then it's different from what PD they're looking for and how I can help them develop. If I'm mentoring somebody who actually genuinely wants to jump from Belgium to Singapore and then from Singapore to Argentina or something, it's very different from somebody who wants to come over here for a few years and then wants to return because then it's going to be hard to stay system. I found it more open if they're going to the independent sector in the UK and they've come from that sector overseas and go back. They're more willing to take. But, you know, that's another of the questions. It didn't kind of, it didn't fit to act, to raise that earlier, but that's definitely something else that sometimes needs to be asked. I think as well, I, I build on exactly as Giles said, where it becomes more of a two-way process. And for teachers who are becoming disenfranchised in the UK and not sticking, traditionally, when we all went into teaching, we went, it was a life career. We all know research is showing us teachers now after five, six, seven years are leaving the profession. So I actually think that we need to globalise the profession much more engagingly with teachers and say, you're disengaged with teaching in the UK, why not try an international setting and regain the passion for teaching? So I think these bodies, be it Fabicia, Cobus, whoever it is, um, could do much more work between the two. And maybe we need to be looking in the future as international educators about setting up a, a job swap thing, you know, where mm -hmm. staff trying mm -hmm. to go back to the UK might be able to just swap with someone in the UK who are, as you put it, Giles dipping the toe in. So I think this has got to be two-way. How, how can we improve our recruitment by getting those people across here and how can our family, our colleagues return more easily?
Excellent. Any other thoughts before we move on to the the final the final question? I think um yeah, just to touch on that one actually, and again, this is all individual to come out. I tend to find I I look more for people who are actually genuinely looking to be international careerists and not people who want to dip the toes in and go back because I feel like they bring a different flavour in what I'm looking for. And particularly if I'm hiring, again, it's not always practical because I will just people just come first posting overseas, that's fine. They're very good people. But if I've got somebody who's actually particularly moved around a few different, very cultural, different places, they will go more to my top of the list when it comes to hiring. And just on that, on that sort of final point, what would you say is one one thing that a school should do? So if there is a school, you know, in a, in a particular region that's looking, that's, that's struggling to retain teachers, um, what would you advise as sort of one of the key things that, that you would look at to to ensure you're 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 walking on the path to to help retain the, your your teachers and maintain the high standards, of course, as well, but retaining those teachers that you think are really really high quality and delivering um, a great great product i suppose for for the school and for students um is there one thing in particular that jumps to mind for each of you i think for me it's just being realistic and being being upfront. and i think i think if you could be straight from the beginning about what you can offer and what you can't offer um i think you save yourself a lot of trouble down the line um you know if you've been honest about expectations when it comes to contract renewal or you know extensions and you're not kind of doing little individual deals to keep people on and it just saves a lot of time and effort, I think, down the line. I think people want an honest answer to an honest question about expectations, you know, teaching load, all that kind of stuff. But I think clear expectations in terms of what they're joining as an organisation has has saved me a lot of disappointed, you know, people after a week um, down the line. So I, I just think be straight. If someone says no, that's okay. I think it's better to do that than have somebody here and then, you know, there's a disconnect between expectations. Yeah, I think I think very similar, Giles. Um, live and breathe an open door policy. Don't just say I have an open door policy. Live and breathe it. Make sure you're approachable. Make sure you're a hundred percent transparent. Teach treat all the staff fairly with parity. We've all experienced that where different people have been treated in different ways, and that breeds content discontent. So back to trust, transparency, and being open and being kind and caring, having that empathy and understanding what people might be going through with the ability to put yourself in their shoes. You might not be able to answer everything they want, but that empathy will come over to show you care. One thing also in line with empathy is one thing I've heard over and over again is that schools will bring in highly experienced educators, um, but then the voice of the educator and what they have to offer sometimes is it's not heard or it's not valued, um, particularly when schools are going through, say, a major change in curriculum, for example, and they'll hear an interview, well, you know a lot about inquiry-based learning or you know a lot about technology. And then when they get there, some of the schools, not all, some really great schools that really value and embrace teachers say, you know, I'm not quite sure I was why I was hired because when I speak up in meetings and I have input, I feel like not trusted or it's a case of you haven't been here long enough to know really what ideas will work and not work. So I think that we're looking for the skill set that we want. We have to be really, you know, open to, what well, how shall I say, 
strategic about making sure they feel genuinely valued, that they have brought in with a degree of expertise, you value that expertise, you want them to help the school go in the direction in a genuine way, because I think that the number one thing I've heard in the last few years in senior leadership role, in looking at, you know, exit interviews, uh, people saying I wasn't the head, but saying, well, the head said that they would utilize these skills, but I felt the head really never valued what I had to bring, and maybe the head had their own agenda or just was afraid of losing control of a process um, because they had had their own pressures. Um, so I think if an educator feels valued and the, and the package is working for them, and you have, like you say, the transparency and the honesty, you have a fantastic culture, I think people will stay longer than they might have planned. Yeah, I think just to echo those thoughts, actually, and just touch on what Karen said there is... Uh can't say you have an open door policy and then genuinely don't. I think it's also mm. whatever you say in an interview and everything, you actually live with what you say. And I think the other thing is just, that, uh, I mean, coming on to culture, what you said there, Laura, the atmosphere inside the building. I, I read mm. somewhere once and I thought it's always resonated with me that if you go for an interview somewhere and you don't hear any laughter in the whole building, you should walk out the door straight away and not work in that place. And I've always, uh, always held that to a, a thing that you should have and you should encourage people and not be stressed. Oh, so-and-so's chatting to you. I mean, laughter and everything. You should encourage that atmosphere and trust it. As long as people are doing the job, you trust them to get on with that because the professionals and that level of trust, again, is there. And you're not micromanaging. I think that kills a culture. Micromanagement from leadership will never make anyone want to flourish and stay somewhere. But I'm happy if I'm working somewhere where I can hear laughter in the building and people are genuinely... Again, good and bad days, but on the whole, they're happy to come to work. I think that's uh, same. I say the same for children. Are they genuinely happy in the school? If I hear lots of laughter from the children at school, I know we're doing something right. That's more important to me than looking at what grades they're getting. Fantastic. I think Max. I think you know. In in terms of one one, you know, I, I think if staff feel they're still growing, the chances are they won't leave. Hmm. They will leave at some point. Um, you know, and they might and they should and they, but if they feel like they're growing, they won't leave. Brilliant. That might be a great, great, great place to end it. Um, obviously, yeah, huge, huge topic of conversation at the moment. And, and I think this is you know, obviously going to be the start of many, many conversations within the community um, about this. And it'd be great to bring in more and more voices and more opinions from different regions as well. But yeah, thank you so much, everyone, for for, for sort of sharing your your ideas, thoughts, opinions, uh, based on all the different regions that you've worked around the world. And, um, you know, it's obviously a very exciting time for international schools and teaching internationally. Um, and some of the highlights that you mentioned, you know, transparency when hiring, I think it all just feels like transparency is key. A great pastoral um, system is key um, and a robust professional development plan that is potentially, you know, tailored to, to the different um, to the different levels of staff and, and colleagues in schools. So I think it seems like if we can get those right, then we're, then we're going a long way to... To, to making people you know want to stay within within the sector and um within the school that everyone works so yeah thank you so much for your time guys and yeah really looking forward to maybe doing a part two um shortly and obviously getting uh getting more voices in on the conversation too 